going to go out on a limb here and say that season two is going to be absolutely incredible because in season two, I have a co-host. Co-host, say hello. Hello. That's Caroline. She's now my co-host. So season two of Shareable is going to be a little bit different. We're still talking about people and technology, but we're going to go a little bit deeper, a master class. So grab your favorite pen. And your favorite piece of paper. And get ready to take some notes because this is Shareable. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Shareable. Today, I get to talk to someone who I am so incredibly stoked is on the show uh, because I've been really excited to pick his big, fabulous brain. Phil M. Jones, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here, guys. Yeah, it's a delight. Cool, cool. So uh, there. So here's what my experience of you has been. I didn't know who you were prior to September when we met at our, our fun little secret uh, meetup that we're both part of. And... Um, I had no idea who you were. And then all of a sudden, you were like literally everywhere in my world. Everybody was talking about Phil Jones. Everyone was like, you got to talk to Phil Jones. You got to read Phil Jones. Phil Jones, Phil Jones. And I anticipate that that's what's going to happen for the people who are listening right now who don't know who you are. So do me a favor. Give people the 30 to 60 seconds of who you are and what you do in this world so that they can then go and investigate you after listening to this episode. Yeah, 30 to 60 seconds. That's a tough one. But um... I think you could do it. Let's, let's try, shall we? So um, who am I? What do I do? Where do I bring to the world? I spend the bulk of my time helping people who need to sell stuff that would hate the idea of being salespeople to wrap their head around what is a fairly complex subject for many and help them get instantaneously better results. So that means that I speak, I coach, I consult, I run a small agency. Um, I do all sorts of things, including writing some books, which I think is where um, you were first introduced to my work, which is my current little release called Exactly What to Say. Which is a fabulous book, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let all of my audience know that I'm going to be telling you to buy this book probably several times throughout the course of this uh, episode. And that's partly because this has very quickly become one of my Bibles. As, as Phil, I texted you after I saw it and, or after I read it and what I put in your Amazon review and in the video review I put together. This has become one of my always with me at all times. It joins the ranks of How to Win Friends and Influence People, Pitch Anything, and uh, the book Influenced by Robert Cialdini. Those are books that I go back to all the time when I just need a little kick in the pants or, you know, I, I have a question I'm trying to work through. Uh, so kudos on putting together what I consider to be just a, a masterpiece book. Thank you. Thank you. No, it was a lot of work to create a little book, but it's, um, yeah, something I'm immensely proud of. Well, actually, one of the things I wanted to point out about it for, uh, just that I want to appreciate you for, but also for anybody that's considering buying it and they're like, but I hate reading. Uh, it's actually a very, um, it, it's, it's not a, I would call it a small book, but by comparison to like War and Peace or the Encyclopedia, but it, it, it's a relatively easy book to carry around. There's a, you know, it's, it's pretty big type in some pages, but like that, that doesn't in any way diminish. In fact, I think the format of the book contributes to its overwhelming value that it's very straightforward and gives tons of amazing advice in it. So, um, you know, I don't want to uh, spend the full time I get to have with you just, you know, uh, gushing about your book, but uh, for those that are listening. <laughs> well, really on that point as well, Jeff, to just to provide some context too, is, is I learned through all of the people that I've worked with is that people are really good at buying books. Like, like people in business, they love it. And they're just not so good at reading them. <laughs> and I That's see true. people with these bookshelves full of great reads that you have to trudge your way through the content to be able to find the good stuff. So my goal was to distill it down into a way that says, okay, say you had a you know, a 90 minute flight or a 90 minute train ride, or that you were just uh, considering, do I watch a TV show or a movie or shall I do something to move my business forward? I wanted to write a book that could occupy some of that space and maybe could win some attention back from the likes of Netflix. So my goal was to, to really distill it down and create something that people could not only read quickly, but jump straight to action on too. Cause I think it's the actionability of advice that is way, way more important than the understanding. It's the fact that somebody can use it, put it into practice, start to see some immediate results. Well, then you've succeeded because I literally read this on my plane flight to Bahrain instead of watching the Netflix uh, show Mind, uh, Mindhunter that I had downloaded. And after reading it in approximately 90 minutes or so, I then took the next half hour to 45 minutes and just went back through and started taking some notes on it. So uh, ding, ding, you hit the, the, the bullseye right, right in the middle. Um, so I want to start off with, I think, what is probably going to be the most important question anyone has ever asked you. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. What is your number one best sales tip that will help me to grow at 200% or better year over year? And before you answer that, Phil, yeah. I want you to start off by telling me, how do you deal with so many people that are looking for silver bullets to overwhelming success 
when they probably just need five to 10% better. Okay, which question do you want me to answer first? I don't want you to answer the first one. The first one was a setup for the second one, which is why does everyone look for the silver bullet when they just need to be five or 10% better? Um, I don't know if anybody needs to be five or 10% better, needs to be 200% better. I think this push towards giant metrics of saying improvement, 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 improvement can sometimes create an unnecessary anxiety within people that just holds them back or limits their success. I think what people really want to be looking for is to say, well, where can continuous improvement come from? And it comes from more so looking at what you're already doing and saying, how can I provide some elements of success towards that? So if I look at where the, um, the distillation of say exactly what to say came from as a book choice, I've worked with over 2 million salespeople in my time. And what I've noticed is the differences between those that are doing fine and those that are absolutely killing it is it's those marginal little differences. And those differences have come through the importance of reflection and review. People are looking for perfect. People are looking to say, how do I jump in and do something perfectly first time? And you can't. You just have to get your feet wet, get up to your knees in it, get up to your waist in it, get up to your neck in it. And then what happens is through that experience, you start to realize that better is possible. Too many people are holding back saying, how do I make this perfect sales approach? How do I make this perfect sales call? How do I make this perfect presentation? And you don't get to be perfect to anything through looking at it from a distance. You've got to get in and experience it. My advice to everybody right now, if they're looking to improve their success in this area, is to go get out and try it. There are so many opportunities in this world. It's abundant, so many, that you have plenty of opportunity to mess it up and learn fast. Learn to see what can be done better, but be brave enough that when you've tried something and it hasn't worked out the way you anticipated, stop, reflect, and review. So I have a little process behind everything I do. I use it in my speaking business still today. I use it everywhere I go. That following what I do, I write a list of what did I do really well? What did I like about it? What do I want to not change for next time? And then I write a second list, which is what is all the things that I would change if I found myself in that exact same situation again? And I learned this from an early coach of mine. We call it LBs and NTs. LB stands for what did I like best about that activity? NT stands for what would I do next time? And it means that what happens is I far surpass five, 10% improvements because I'm being honest and I'm being brave to try. When you were on um, Mitch Joel's podcast, you likened, you, you brought up the idea that some of this stuff is very similar to dating. You, you used it as an analogy, yeah. which I think is really interesting. So uh, just a quick uh, aside that you probably don't know about me. I have a side business uh, where I help people with online dating because I recognize that online dating is very similar to online marketing, similar principles. And I always harp on the exact words that you should be using or the phrases that you use because of how they make the other person feel. But what you're talking about here about this kind of go out there and try it and fail, it's a similar sort of fear, I think, in sales as it is in dating, in that there's that fear of rejection, the fear of failure. And you work a lot with people to kind of get over these things. What are some of the ways that you help people do that? Because these are paralyzing fears for some people to even go and make those mistakes of missing the big chance, blowing the moment. How do you deal with that? Well, I think what happens is if we use the, the dating analogy here too, is that what we're always looking at is we're looking at the finish line. Firstly, the thought behind the fact that there actually is a finish line, I think, is a myth. Because whether it's a customer, whether it's finding a spouse, whether it's looking to get married, even that finish line never ends in theory, right? What we're looking to be able to do is to, to have a long-term meaningful relationship with a customer, with a lover, with whatever it might mean. The goal is to slow the thing down. See, if I say just go try it, what am I saying try it first? Is if you find somebody, something, someone that you're quite interested in, well, what is the first thing you need to do is to engage in a conversation. A question starts a conversation. Questions start conversations. Conversations build relationships. Relationships create opportunities. Opportunities lead to sales, success, maybe another S. Um, but we. I, <laughs> I like that you paused there. Thank you for. <laughs> Thank just, you. Get, just gave you a moment there to catch up. Um, so we need to get good at asking questions. Now, if you're asking questions, you can never be wrong. That's the beautiful thing with questions. When people are pitching at people or when people are starting to force themselves on other people, that's where you can tread over the line. When you tread over the mark, that's where you find high levels of rejection in the other direction. What that then means is, is that the emotion that should exist in your head if you want to succeed in dating, you want to succeed in the world of sales or in marketing is to be curious. The more curious that you can become, the more what you can do is to find genuine opportunities. If anybody listening into the show right now has ever asked somebody to marry them, 
chances are the day you asked that question wasn't because you were rolling the dice and hoping and hedging your bets. You were pretty certain of the answer. The goal in sales is to ask enough questions, to enjoy enough experience that when you're going to ask the question, that you carry that same level of certainty. I really love how you liken the intimate, personal, romantic relationships to sales because I think that they're, they're really good metaphors for one another. It's Lots. also way, way more important in today's marketplace that we see it that way around. There has been this stigma attached to sales in the past that it's the day that the customer signs the contract, everybody's in the office behind high-fiving, throwing fistfuls of 50s in the air. And that isn't how we exist today. We have a very transparent environment. Customer has a lot more power than they've ever had at any point within the past. Our responsibility, not only as a sales professional, but the service provider behind that, is to back up what it is that we're asking the person to buy with at least what we said it was. It means that the finish line in the sales transaction isn't the day that somebody signs the contract. It's the day and then the days that follow after the client gets the results that you were promising them in the conversation. So the minute you move that out as well, what we start to do is to change the dynamic of a sales conversation too. Got it. Got it. Um, do you think that it's possible to get anybody to enjoy being in sales? I mean, a lot of what you're saying makes sense, I think, in terms of like, if you reframe it and you get people comfortable with it and you get them asking questions, um, maybe you can get them over some of that fear. Do you think it's possible to really get anybody to fall in love with sales? And, and when I say sales, by the way, I mean, sales in a, a more broad context, sort of like we've been talking about relationships or, you know, pitching your boss about something or getting a project going. Is there a way to inspire? Because you clearly love this stuff. And there's something inside of you that I think drives you forward. You, you, maybe you enjoy the chase of it or there's something. Do you think that that's something that's there for everyone? And it just needs to be awakened? Or is this, is, do people fall into the sales role? Um, there are thousands of scenarios where people fall into the role, but is it something that everybody can apply themselves to and everybody can enjoy? Yes, under one condition. The condition that is required is that the first sale that needs to happen is one that's on yourself. Quite literally, if you're not convinced, you cannot convince. So if you don't believe what you're asking the other person to see in you, and you don't believe that part to be true, then you're going to live a very uncomfortable life trying to get other people convinced to be able to believe that fact. So that's where the enjoyment comes from. Mm -hmm. See, I'm pretty sure that, you know, say in your world, Jeff, as a marketing consultant or a social media strategist, et cetera, when you were having a conversation with somebody about what they could do differently within their business to get more effective results using social media, I'm 100% certain that in that conversation, you believe in its entirety, everything you're saying and the results in which you can achieve for that other person. You're fully committed to that belief. Now, that then becomes a transfer of enthusiasm into that other person, and the other person should get just as excited about it as you do. But if inside of you, you're thinking, I don't know whether I can do what I'm saying here or I'm talking a load of whatever, then chances are you're going to feel even mighty uncomfortable. And if that customer says yes to you, that level of discomfort is going to rise even more significantly. And then you're going to feel guilty or under pressure or anxious. So this is meaning that today's sales environment needs to be full of integrity. It needs to be full of internal belief that you can deliver upon your promises and once you've got that and you can sell within your means and within your capabilities that's where the fun starts what makes you say that and <laughs> i want i want you to answer that from probably a different perspective than you typically use it or coach people on using it i want to know what makes you say that in terms of i want you to go back and tell me how you became this person you've I'm, discovered things and learned things right i've heard about some of your experiences as you know the early car wash and those things but what were the sales influences and the other influences that helped you to kind of create this positioning this knowledge set that got you to this point where you could talk like this so confidently and comfortably about all this stuff i've been involved in literally thousands of of products and service transactions from about every industry that you could ever possibly believe in. First business was when I was 14 years of age, knocking on the doors of my neighbors, asking them to have their cars washed. But past that point in time, I've, I've done all sorts of other things. Like I had a mobile disco business. I had a horticultural landscaping business. I had, um, what else did I have? Um, I had a small printing business. I had a small web development business all through my teens. I've been involved in large level department stores where we've been competing against others at a very, very high level. I've been involved in uh, Premier League soccer clubs and negotiating shirt contract deals. And really? Yeah. So I was former, cool. yeah, former commercial uh, director, head of retail at Birmingham City and Leicester City um, back in the UK and, and, and looking at ticketing deals and sponsorship packages, et cetera. 
So I've, I've been in all sorts of different transactions. And probably one that served me the best is, is I was involved in, in a very successful property company. And we grew to a point where we were flying in 2006, 2007, like doing great. And we had a product that was like the bomb. It was the coming together of so many great things where a country had adopted Euro currency. It was a developing country with a huge amount of um, government investment into the area. Property prices were skyrocketing. We had the banks on board for finance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was basically turned 20 grand into 200 grand over 10 years with very minimal risk. And then what happened is that the economy crashed. 2008, some of us might well be familiar with that. So I went from having this dynamic confidence in every part of this process that we could deliver to then being, I don't think this is going to do what we said it was going to do. I think we're now into a predicament here that um, we're going to have to look at this through a completely different lens. And in that environment, what my sales role became is instead of speaking to all of my consumers about why they should put their money in, I learned to negotiate with every supplier within that food chain an ecosystem in order to make sure that my clients got at least what we promised. So that was toe-to-toe -to -toe with a bank, toe-to-toe -to -toe with a developer, toe-to-toe -to -toe with local authorities in order to be able to go to fight the argument that I'm looking for. And I think that's what we're looking to be able to do as salespeople is we're looking to be able to assist the decision-making process. That's what our role is. We're professional mind maker-uppers. And if we are to put ourselves into that process, we have to do it where we believe in what we're fighting for. Like, I don't understand how a criminal prosecution lawyer can believe that somebody's guilty yet still put them on the stand and still be able to fight for their innocence. That just doesn't work for me. But I can fight any given battle for any given environment in which I, you know, I truly believe in what it is that I'm talking about. Um, and it's the quantity of those conversations that gives me the knowledge of being able to say, I can navigate these situations more easily. And when people say to me things like, Phil, how does it come to you so easily? It's like, I've messed it up way too many times. And, and, and that, that works. And when I say mess it up, I don't mean mess it up to, to like inconsequential, like awful results. I mean, I found the hard way. And then I've worked out that working the way around the hard way is the hard way. And then that's meant that I found that there are some easier ways. So a lot of this has come obviously from the struggle. I think we all, we can all agree how much progress comes from screwing things up. Um, I, I think your, your point about belief is so incredibly important to underscore because I don't think in sales, I think in a lot of sales conversations or sales training conversations, we get stuck on even, even the fact that your book is called exactly what to say. I think again, people are looking for that. Well, just show me the things I need to do. And they don't, they don't stop to think one, do I believe in the product? Do I stand behind the product? And they're often looking for what is that coat of paint that they could put over it to get the sale rather than taking a look inside and figuring out what do I need to fix first. We deal with this in social media all the time where they're like, well, just do more social media. And it's like, <laughs> well, your culture is jacked up. Your products you are, are breaking. Your customer service is just absolutely terrible. There's, there's no possible way that Facebook ads is going to fix this. So let's fix yeah. your company first. Yeah, we can make that run faster. We can make me more people aware of your shortcomings, if you like. Yeah, um, Exactly. But it's about being it's about being outcome focused with everything we need to do. So many many companies that I work with on a consulting basis or on a speaking basis, they say they want to train their people more effectively. But the thing that they're often training them on is product knowledge and company protocol. Mm -hmm. It's not on how to sell anything. And then what they do is that they say we want to treat teach people how to sell stuff. And they think that what that's about is working through a sales presentation folder or this 16-stage slide deck. Or yeah, Here's our features and benefits. Learn them. You got it. But what they particularly fail to do, even more so with new members of the team, is to show them how valuable this product set is or this service set is towards a number of existing clients. Like if they could see something through to fruition and hear back the stories from existing happy clients and learn all about why this has a dramatic impact upon the people they've already served, chances are they'll take those stories, bring them into the field, and they'll actually have more confidence in what they are then going to deliver. But people say the first thing you need to sell is yourself. I think that's nonsense. The first thing you need to sell is yourself. You need to sell yourself on what it is that you're looking to be able to do, because without that, you can't run through a brick wall. You can't even open the door in the wall. It's such a good point. And, and it's funny because it echoes back to the first episode of uh, Shareable in season two. We had a woman named Patty Azzarello on and she talked about managing this team of engineers and there was a bug in this software. 
and how she was trying to get them to fix it and trying to get them to fix it. And they just were like, eh, it's priority 17. And she put them on a plane and sent them out to go on a sales presentation with the client, uh, you know, dealing with this particular issue. And the minute they experienced it and empathized it and, and they believed that it was an actual problem, it got fixed almost immediately. So it's like, you really need this buy-in internally before anybody takes any action in the first place. Right. And even if you're a solopreneur, that's the exact same thing. And I think lots of people start in business for themselves. I have a huge passion towards entrepreneurship. And I think that, that there are lots of people who could turn their passion into profits. I have a huge ambassador for that. But this little self-talk comes in where people start thinking, well, they're not good enough. Start drawing comparison to other areas. And that comparison starts to create limiting beliefs in it itself. So I think it's important to keep stretching your environment and looking for what's true and understanding the, you know, the absolute value that you bring towards others so that you can then carry that into all of your activities. You mentioned uh, just before, um, a couple minutes ago, I guess, uh, you were talking about the, the quantity of experiences that you've had and how that's kind of shaped it. Um, I want to ask you about in the construction of this book that you've put together and, and just the words and phrases that you use. I, I'm listening to a number of your different interviews and hearing you talk to people and different things. I've noticed how how these just kind of roll off your tongue. Um, so you've obviously, you know, built it over time. The process of finding these words, is it strictly an anecdotal kind of, you've been through it, you begin to try it and then, and over time you're like, Oh, I say it this way and that works. Is it a, is it a quantitative process, a qualitative process, something that you just kind of, you know, intrinsically pull out of the experiences you've had with other people training? Um, it's a little more than that. So, I, I get approached by a lot of companies and I've been involved in all of my sales career, particularly being invited to help talk towards the how do we better overcome objections. That is something that's been asked of me for hundreds of times over decades is how do you teach my team to get better at overcoming objections? And I don't like this thought process is I'd rather that we could just avoid objections in the first place. Mm -hmm. So what I would look at is I'd look at and I would study language patterns and to see where the conversations are being controlled in the right kind of way. And it would mean that when we weren't getting the result we were looking for or the result was coming over too long a period of time or the conversation was getting clunky, I was realizing there was probably something that should have been asked earlier on that created the evidence that was required in order for this to not now be a negative conversation. Now let me talk something through with you here to help you understand the level that I would go to on something like this. I used to work in the furniture industry. And the thing that I was asked to do in the furniture industry was to help teams better overcome the objections when faced to two of the key profit drivers. The two key profit drivers in the furniture industry with coaches, one was uh, with couches was like fabric protection was one. So fabric protection on top of the sofa was something that drove huge profit. And then the second thing behind that was the footstool, you know, an upholstered box you could put your feet on or use for storage. Those two things could often drive more, uh, more margin than the sale of the complete couch itself. So bosses would say to me, Phil, how can you help my sales teams do a better job when introducing these products and services to customers that when they face objection, they can spin around in the other direction? So I said, well, wouldn't it make more sense that instead of us overcoming the objections, we could just make them impossible to come up in the first place? I said, I've got no idea what you're talking about, Phil. I said, well, think of it as instead of getting good at putting out a fire, can we just take the matches out of the guy's pocket so he doesn't have any choice? And they still didn't have any idea what I was talking about. So I said, well, what are the two most common objections that we currently face right now? So let's take fabric protection, first of all. What do you think the most common objection was as to why people wouldn't want to have their fabric professionally sealed at a factory so when you spill something on it, it doesn't stain? My what? guess would, do I need that? That would, be, that would be my first question is, do I need that? Is it, how much does it cost? Yeah, so you're coming at it with a price viewpoint, but it isn't actually what people say. What people would actually say back in the other direction is some form of, we don't need that. We're dead careful. We don't eat and drink on our furniture. <laughs> now, come on, right? If everybody listening into this call right now or in this podcast right now was to ask themselves honestly, have they ever had a TV dinner, a glass of wine, a tin of beer while sat watching a movie? The answer is more than likely they've done that at least once. So when people say to me that salespeople are liars, my experience has been that customers aren't so good at telling the truth either. Now, difficulty we have here, though, is if the consumer says to us, we don't eat and drink on our furniture, what right do we then have to recommend fabric protection? We have no right at all. We have to then take what they say to be true and say, okay, so perhaps you don't need it. Now, what about footstools? What do you think the most common excuse was as to why people didn't want a footstool? Uh, let's see. Um, 
Aaron of the space for it? I yeah, space. It? Space was the right? one. You got it right. <laughs> Nailed first time. So space was the answer. So people would say they've not got the room. Now, having never seen their home, I've got no way of being able to say to them, well, no, sure you do. Because I just have to take what they say to true. If they say we haven't got the space, I say, okay. So what we've done is we've created validation for our underperformance in, toward, in towards introducing these products or services. Mm -hmm. What I did to avoid this is I started to write some questions, questions to make it impossible for the other person to say that we don't eat and drink on our furniture and impossible to say we haven't got the room. Questions run out something like this. Apart from yourself, who would be using the furniture? Customers would say me, the wife, the dog, the kids, etc. I'd follow it up with a leading question whilst nodding and say what and the spot of entertaining. What did everybody say to that question? Of course. Where else yeah. would you be? I mean, nobody admits to having no friends, even if that's true. <laughs> so we're in a situation here where they've told me they use it for entertaining. I say, is it going in your best room or your everyday room? Do I mind which one they answer? Best room or everyday room? Mm, you probably want it in the everyday room, but either way. Either way, I win, right? Best room, continue, looks at its best. Everyday room's going to take a hammering. I'm gathering more evidence to support my argument. I say, your last piece of furniture, how long did you keep that one for? It didn't matter what they answered. Three years, five years, seven years. It didn't matter how they answer. I say, I guess you're looking for this to last the same time or longer. What did everybody say? Of course. So now I've got a situation where my consumer has told me that they're often entertaining. They wanted to go in their best room and they wanted to last a long time. Am I in good shape to recommend fabric protection? God, this is devious. I mean, in a good way. But this is, like, this it, is honest. Yeah, it's honest and it's brilliant. And you're putting people, it's funny because I have a question. We're going we're gonna to come back to this. I have a question for this later, but yes, I have some, yes, sorry. Now I've got good situation here to introduce fabric protection, but I don't like good. I don't like high levels of success. Certainty is my favorite place to get to. So here's where I developed some more magic words, some words that we list in the book, exactly what to say. And here's where I learned that if you preface a statement with these magic words, you can get just about anybody to agree to just about anything, providing you're reasonable. And it's the preface to the state. Um, it's the preface that you put in front of the words, and in the prefaces, um, I bet you're a bit like me. God, I was going to guess that, or I was going to say most people. Yeah, so I'd say I bet you're a bit like me. Get home from work, enjoy nothing more than grabbing a glass of wine, sat down in front of the box. Now people just agree to that. I bet your household's just like mine. Never finds time for a family dinner around the table. More often than not, it's a tray in your lap in front of the television. And the more you know that customer, the more you're able to frame that. I bet you're a bit like me. Correct. Who exactly they are. Correct. So now we've got some agreement, but we haven't talked fabric protection yet. This has been earlier on in the conversation. I've just collected all of that evidence, but I've still got this footstool to introduce. So I come straight for it. I say, so this best room of yours, how big's the room? Now, it doesn't matter what they tell me. 12 by 7, 74 by 42. I don't care what they say. Response is identical. I say, wow, that's a fair size room. I mean, how big is a fair size room? Yeah. It, it's kind of a, a subjective measure, huh? Right. It's a fair size, but I got more chance getting a footstool in a fair size room than labeling anything any other way. And labeling yeah. is a wonderful thing. It's a technique. tiny room. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd say, so you're ordering a three-seater and a two-seater. How are you going to lay it out in this room of yours? Just showing interest. They'd tell me I'd play dumb. I'd find it difficult to understand. I'd ask them to draw it for me. As they're sketching it out on a piece of paper, guess what happens with almost every person on the planet? They draw the room bigger and the furniture smaller because they're not architects and they can't do scale. As they're drawing and creating me more room, I'm saying, so what do you do when you're entertaining? Where does everybody sit? They say, well, we're dragging chairs through from the other room. People are sat on the floor. I say, what about storage? They say, we've never got room for that. Am I in good shape to introduce a footstool? Yes, clearly. However, I still like certainty. So I wrote my best question that I think I've ever wrote in my whole career. And I don't tell many people this. So you're going to get this on this show. This is nice. the best of the best of the best. And it's particularly prevalent because we're recording this show in December. The question that I wrote is Christmas time. Where does the tree go? I'll let that sit with you for a second. Okay. And you'll realize very quickly why that's such an awesome question. Because what do I now learn is if they've got room for a Christmas tree, what else they got room for? They've got room for a tiny little stool. Yeah. And I've just found out where it lives for 11 months of the year. Now I did this whole round of questioning. Oh, <laughs> Ah, that's the, great. The look on both of yeah. us. <laughs> Thanks for the pen, penny drop moment. But, what, awesome. but um, what I've allowed myself to do through this process is to get to a very important point in conversation. And this is the point I want the listener to understand. And we come back around to your question about where the science comes in from exactly what to say. The only goal I was looking to be able to get to is to understand that I can never, ever, 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 ever recommend anything to anybody unless I can say these words first. 
And the words I want to be able to say first are the words because of the fact that you said. See, I want to be able to say to somebody, because of the fact that you said that you're often entertaining, you want the furniture to last a long time that's going in your best room, it's for those reasons we recommend you have your fabric professionally sealed at the factory. And remember you said you like sitting with your feet up, enjoying a glass of wine in front of the box, plus you're often struggling for extra seats. For those reasons, we'd recommend you have a footstool, and if you're ever wondering where it goes, it sits underneath your feet. So what we've done is we've recommended things to other people's reasons. There's something the listener does have to understand here though, is you probably want to understand what happened to conversion rates. So conversion rates before I started that questioning technique process is fabric protection was running at around 60% conversion. Where did it rise to? It was at 60%? Yeah, prior to us. It had to rise to over 80%. Yeah, only 95. <sighs> only 95. Please note, not everybody. Yeah. Of course, there's still going to be some who are like, look, I, I just know. Yeah, and yeah. you can be okay with that, right? Yep. And footstools were running around 25% before we introduced this process. Where did they rise to? Uh, 75? No, only 40. Oh. Still significant still uplift. Significant. Yeah. We Double. over doubled the average transaction value of our customers. Yeah. That I was just, the result. I, I just heard your questions and figured, shit, I don't know how you get, I don't know how you back out of that without buying one. Because you, you, it's like airtight. It, pretty much. But we have that ability to be able to do that in any given sales track, providing we're speaking to the right people. Now, if you are having a meaningful conversation with somebody who has a genuine interest in your product and service, and you're not developing those series of questions that support your business, then you're making it hard for yourself. Because how, like people say they hate scripts and that they're uncomfortable with the fact that they feel rigid and frameworked, etc. Now, these aren't scripts. These are just patterns of me saying, I'm going to find myself in somewhere like the identical conversation on hundreds of times a week, as is everybody within my sales team. Wouldn't it make sense to understand that the worst time for me to think about the thing I'm going to say is in the moment where I'm saying it? Yeah. No, um, that makes perfect sense. Be prepared. Hmm. But we're not scripting. What we're doing is that we are creating a structure and a framework to a conversation that says, until we've got this piece of evidence, we don't go past go. Until we've got this piece of evidence, we don't introduce this. So it's about coming back to the point I made earlier is we are curious towards being able to find out the information we need that we only recommend things towards people that we need them because our role in the process isn't to sell people stuff, it's to assist them in the decision-making process so that they make the right decision for them both today and long into the future. I have like a mental decision tree that I'm like trying not to build in my head right now from, from the inspiration of that furniture story. And it's work, you know, that, that, that took me a number of, of attempts of being able to say what works, let's try, let's test, let's measure, let's refine to be able to create that for something that sounds so effortless and easy. And I now write question trees for, um, for a variety of different companies across the world to help them with their most common requests. So I've listened to a couple of your interviews, we've met in person, I've read your book, and I have a theory about, uh, about some of the approaches that you take. And I'm just okay. going to throw it out there and I want to hear what you think about it. Go for it. But I've noticed that you have kind of three different styles. Now, your goal is always to gather information, it seems like. You're very big on questions, put you in the position of power, and uh, questions are obviously important in sales. And I've noticed that you have this dance that you do where you use three different approaches and the combination of them is simply magical to watch. So here are the three that I've noticed. You ask sort of a romancing information gathering. That's the conversation you were just talking about in that furniture example. You know, tell me about your room. Yep. Da, 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 da. So those are the sort of flirting in a sales conversation, right? You also ask direct confronting questions. So the, what makes you say that is, is kind of direct and there's not a lot of way out. And, and the directness of it, I think, puts people a little bit in a, a position of surprise. So they answer the first honest thing that comes out of their, their face. Um, the third piece, I think, is you have sort of what I would call a pleasantly trapped into answering form of question, where you've gathered enough information at this point that you're able to ask a question that people kind of have to answer. There's almost no way out of it. Like one of the ones that you... Um, that I noticed in the book you said is what's the best number to contact you at? It's like, there's, there's no other answer to that. Like, you can't just be like, no, you like, there's, there's nothing to say other than two, one, five, seven is the only thing. So those are the three styles I've noticed. Now, I don't know if you have sort of a, 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 uh, a philosophy of what your style is, but that's kind of what I've observed. And if, if that is something that you can clearly see how you do it, how do you go about this dance? How do you decide what type of questions to ask and what uh, scenario and, and how does this all work? 
everything I list is all a tool, right? So all the things that exist within the book, everything that actually comes towards even my new book that comes out later um, or early part of next year is all about having precise tools that you can use in the right way at the right time. Mm -hmm. And there's an abundance of them. I think perhaps the easiest way that I can explain this to you and the listeners is to teach you something. And how would you feel if I gave you a three-stage questioning technique that you could use to get just about anybody to do just about anything? Um, no, no. You know what? That would not be a tool that I could use mm. <laughs> to, to make my life better. You know, we, what? you know what? Let's just roll the dice. Sure. Right. You promised me you're only going to use it, though, for like commercial gain with the right people. You're not going to use it to get loved ones to do things and nothing like that. You're just going to use this to, uh, to maybe enhance your business. Hey, man, with great power comes great responsibility. I'm wearing a Spider-Man shirt surrounded by Spider-Man. You've got the right guy to tell the secret. I can't promise for my listeners, but I think they're good people. Okay. Right. Three-stage question, Tony. A couple of bits of things that we need to understand first is, do you believe that this time next year you'll be in a better position than the one you're in today? Hell yeah. So does, so does everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. So we use that to our advantage. First part of this questioning technique is to use a plan-based question that is about their future. So the minute you ask somebody's plans about their future then that becomes a happy conversation to have because they're talking about a better place than the one they're in today. Mm -hmm. Give me a product or service that we could be looking to introduce and we'll play this out with a real life example. So hit me with anything. I'm trying to think whether we should do a client or just ourselves. <laughs> uh, let's go with uh, social media strategy. Let's just take us through us, man. Okay. So the plan-based question that I'm going to ask is nothing to do with social media strategy. It's all about the business that I'm talking to you. So tell me your plans over the next three years. Tell me your plans over the next five years in the business. What are you looking to go on and achieve? So we're looking to grow exponentially, increase our headcount, um, you know, work with a specific type of client. One of our, our big things is trying to work with more of a, a personality type of client that we really, really uh, like best. Like, we, you know, we're reading the pumpkin plan right now and blah, 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 blah. Okay. So what I would do with that is I would ask a dozen more questions around that. I would use a technique called linear probing, which is where what I would do is I'd keep asking for more and more and more and more till I could see as clearly as what you were explaining to me. Because if I can see it, how well can you see it? Yeah, exactly. If you can see it, then then at least you can understand what, what comes next. And the image I want to put people's head on this to help them better understand the learning is you ever seen the movie Shrek? Yes. In the movie Shrek, Shrek says ogres are like onions. They have layers. People are the same. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to peel back those layers. So when you say you want to grow the headcount, I need to say, okay, so where's the headcount right now? Where do you see it to be able to go to? And why that, right? And when you say that we want to get more of the right kind of clients, I say, what are the kind of clients that you have right now? How do you see yourself going through that change? So we're going to keep building that picture out till I can see it kind of clearly, knowing that decisions are made on pictures and every decision is made at least twice. So if I can get you to see something in your future, then chances are we can make some decisions towards that. So that's the first part of this question technique is a plan-based question backed up with linear probing, knowing we're not going to move off that point until they can see it clearly because I can now see it clearly. Mm -hmm. Next thing is, do you know whether people make decisions on emotional logic? Which one do you think it is? Um, I think that they make uh, both, I, but I think emotion comes first. Absolutely. Emotion always comes first. Something has to feel right before it ever makes sense. And I've seen many a salesperson or many a business owner come out of a conversation saying, I don't know why they wouldn't do it. It just makes sense. People don't make decisions based on what makes sense unless it feels right first. Our job is to make it feel right. This person has just explained their happy place, Yes. That's what you'd be explaining with your five years on from now business. That's your happy place. It's as good as it gets for you. So being as you've just described your happy place, second part of this questioning technique is for me to ask, how will you feel when you get there? So five years on from now, you've built this giant empire. You've got a team of amazing staff around you. That's five times the size it is right now. You're doing nothing but serving your most dream perfect clients and your reputation in the marketplace is that you are number one in the field. How's that going to feel then if you've achieved all of that? Yeah, phenomenal, obviously. So you're, you're, you're causing me to live in that emotion of future. Yeah, so I'm creating this um, almost conditional future-facing emotion. I'm putting you into that state and allowing you to be able to semi-experience it. Now, you can't experience it fully, but you have a taste. Mm -hmm. And do you know that when you mouth the words of an emotion, you cannot help but feel a fraction of it in that moment? So when you'd say words like, I'd feel so proud, you experience pride. It's not a fill dose but enough of you to get the taste for it to think I'd like to have that. So what have we now done in this first two stages of the question technique? We've got a vision for the future and we've attached it and anchored it with some emotion that is positive emotion towards it. We've taken them to this happy place. This is where most people stop when it comes to a sales conversation. They say, come with us. We can make everything better for you. We can help you achieve your goals. We can help you achieve all your dreams. And everybody goes, ah, but I'm kind of fine as I am. 
or I'll start tomorrow, or we'll do it next week, next month, next year. Mm-hmm. It's the third stage of this questioning <laughs> technique, which is where the real magic happens. Here's where we create the contrast. And here's the only place in which what we can do is to create a trigger or a lever for people to actually truly take action. But it's the stuff we've done first that's earned us the right to be able to ask this third question. And the third question would be, what would be the consequences of that not working out? And here I can bring it back to the exact service that you provide. So I would say, well, what would the consequences be of you failing to find the right people if I was a recruiter and looking to be able to introduce more of the right people? If I was a business coach looking to be able to support you on your journey, it'd be what would the consequences be if you failing to get your numbers right, missing something around the corner, meaning that what you did is exposed your business during those growth plans? What would the consequences of that be? If I'm an advertising agency, what would the consequences be of you failing to find the right kind of people and meaning that what you did is got tied up with the wrong kind of customers who didn't see the value in what you provide? So I'm going to ask a what would the consequences be question of you not achieving that as a result of something that I could help with. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of work within the hearing care industry. Let me show you how that plays out. So selling hearing aids is a tough gig. It's possibly one of the toughest um, sales gigs that there exists. I mean, you're asking somebody to buy something they fundamentally don't want to own that's going to come at a price of about five times higher than they anticipated. It's going to work about half as well as they wished it would. And when they own it, they're not going to tell anybody. It's like the toughest gig in the world. So we use this same question technique there. What would your plans be for the future? We find a family event that they're looking forward to, a wedding, a party, a vacation, et cetera. How would you feel when you get there? Then will you find people around you? And then for the final question, what would the consequences be if um, you missed some of the key moments on that magic day because you were finding it difficult to hear? That creates the reason to move, right? Yeah, this is that, um, there's the, the Kodak used to have the, um the Kodak moment. And it was all about that fear of missing that moment. Right. And this is what we're looking to be able to create is a movement within other people. And if you are looking to get somebody to change, the easiest thing to get them to change towards is moving towards their happiest of place, but with the reality of a negative outcome attached to it too. And the broader the contrast you can create between those two places, the easier it is to get somebody to move. You ever heard the old saying that you could lead a horse to water, but you cannot make it drink? Yes. You can if you put enough salt in the oats. (laughs) it's a good expression i like that (laughs) and i point nicely and i think that's what we're looking to be able to do so plan-based question how are you going to feel when they get there what happens if it doesn't work out they're the three stages to be able to work through i call that questioning technique prodding the bruise it's like taking an open wound and pouring a little salt on it which sounds a little nasty however we have to be safe in the knowledge that we can put this thing back together again we now need to be able to say good news is that's why we're talking And you need to have that confidence, like we talked about earlier on, to say you can assist them towards the thing that they say they wanted and keep them away from the thing they're fearful of. Okay, two questions. One, did you make up that horse to water quote about the salt and the oats? Yes, I think so. That's think so. Well, I'm going to attribute it to you because I think it's freaking brilliant. Second question, have you ever used your powers for evil? Because, um, and and maybe not intentionally, (laughs) but have you ever maybe worked or helped a client um, to do things, to utilize some of these powers, but they just aren't the most upstanding, uh, you know, people that should have these powers. I mean, obviously there's some unintentional, uh, possibilities of that happening where like, you know, somebody hears one of your podcasts and they go off and they do whatever they do. But, um, have you ever worked with someone where afterwards you're kind of like, icky, feel a little weird. Uh I've done early parts of work with companies and then, and then realized that I didn't want to do any more of that kind of work with them. Um, and I have a very stepped and stage sales process with how I'll get involved with a customer too. And I like to get up to my ankles before I get into my, up to my knees and up to my waist, et cetera. So I kind of mitigated that kind of risk. Um, but I, you know, I, if I take the world of, of professional sport and sponsorship packages, et cetera, you know, there was stuff that I saw in that environment and through agents in those environments were, that were everything that I would hate about the sales process. Everything that would, you know, would rub me up the wrong way. And that's why I didn't spend a lot of time working in that environment because I didn't want to be in a conversation where somebody says, Dan, we've just like closed that amazing sponsorship deal. And I know that they'll never use any of the inventory that we bought, but it sounds great. So we can resell that inventory to other people on a piecemeal basis. I'm like, ah, I don't like that. Yeah. I don't like that one bit. Um, so, so plenty of examples where, you know, I've had witness towards it. Um, and, and there are many a business out there that get really good at selling fresh air. You know, there's, there's nothing behind it. Um, 
But I think what's important is your head can hit the pillow. I think there's times where you're always going to see things in business that aren't the way that you intended them to be and that you're then going to in turn look to be able to walk away. In my world now as a speaker, then we have some very strict criteria towards the kind of organizations that I will speak towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to understand that the, you know, the, the company is making promises that I believe in. So I'm a huge fan of your personal brand and your website. I've recently redone a lot of my stuff and, and learned a lot from the way that you go about doing things. I kind of take it as inspiration. And when we first met you and I, you talked about a positioning document. And I think um, uh, similar to kind of what you were just talking about, about being very clear about who you work with, who you don't. Do you think that any business aside from just personal speakers and personal brands can benefit from a positioning document or from being very clear in, in their language on their website and their different marketing materials to filter out the wrong type of people? I think if we bring it back down towards the, the dating analogy, we need to have a controlled process that helps get towards the outcomes that we're looking for. Now, that might be a positioning document. That might be the way that your website works around, et cetera. So um, I'm just building a brand new agency right now that operates within the digital media space. Now, our decision with that agency is that we're very boutique. We serve a particular niche full of client that will only work primarily through referral or through people that I bump into through some of my speaking work within a particular niche. Our decision in terms of what tools that we need to support that business is that we need none. Our website is one page. It says very little. And the copy on the website says, if you need more information than this, then you're not ready to work with us yet. That's brilliant. And what we wanted to be able to make sure we did is that we didn't give birth to something that then required constant monitoring and attention, but didn't have any commercial gain. And I see a lot of people do this with things where they create sales tools because they've seen other people think that they, um, that they might work, run out and be able to create these things, but not understanding where they assist the conversation. So you and I both speak for a living, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And what often people will do in the speaking world, particularly people who aren't professionals at speaking but have a speech to deliver, is the first thing they go to work on is the PowerPoint or the keynote or the Prezi, right? Mm-hmm. So they go to work on that first and then they deliver their slides. The reverse of which should be true. You should write the speech and then decide what supporting materials you need to be able to deliver and support that message. And the supporting materials may well be an image on a slide. It may well be a prop. It may well be a conversational gesture that appears at that point. It may well be something you do with your body. It may well be something you do to be able to get involved in the audience to be able to further make your point. Same thing is true when romancing a customer. So every document, every tool, every piece, every email, every conversation, et cetera, you can map that to be able to create the experience that you want somebody to go through then chances are that you'll be able to get better results. But don't think, oh, Phil said you need a positioning document, I need a positioning document too. It's, do you receive leads in that way around that is resulting in you then having a conversation, that conversation was lacking in evidence, that that now makes it worth putting a positioning document ahead of that call that better prepares you both and moves it to a 5149 in your favor. Yeah, so there's kind of probably a delicate balance between proactively deciding what you need and creating it versus reacting to a circumstance and figuring out what you need at that point. Questions create conversations, conversations create relationships, relationships create opportunities, opportunities lead to sales. So where are the questions you need to ask? And then where are the tools that support the conversations resulting in you improving the quality of the relationship that then turns to the opportunity? That's what we're looking at. So don't ever, 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 ever produce a marketing or sales aid unless you can understand where it supports the conversation. Let me give you an example of where companies get this wrong all the time. What they often do is they create tools to help assist a sales process that actually become sales prevention officers all by themselves. I'll come back round to the, um, the hearing care profession. Now in the hearing care profession, quite often what happens at the end of a consultation is the doctor, the expert, the medical provider in that puts a sheet in front of a patient that shows them three pieces of technology with three remarkably different price points on them as to which one could be their solution to be able to move forward, which should assist their decision-making process, but it has the alternative effect. It's like giving somebody the Cheesecake Factory menu and asking them in 30 seconds to pick what they want to eat. Too much information that you're underqualified to be able to deliver upon. So we need to make sure that we're using the right tools in the right place in the right way. And more often than not, the majority of tools I see confuse the conversation as opposed to assist the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Phil Jones. Phil, (laughs) uh, I'm so glad that you came onto the show. I think that's definitely a good point to end on. I know you got to run. I want to 
really just sincerely thank you for setting aside the time coming on the show. I was really, really excited to have you on. So um, do me a favor and take just a few minutes to tell people where they can go and learn more about you, where they can uh, find your book, where they can listen to basically anything you want to let people know about right now. I want to give you kind of just turn the show over to you and let you tell people about it. Um, and, and just again, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, a real pleasure to be here. So thank you both of you for, uh, for having me on. And um, yeah, Jeff, where can you find out? I mean, you mentioned my website earlier on. That's philmjones.com. We need the M. Otherwise, what happens is you start to find Manchester United soccer players. You know, the worst thing in the world as well is I'm a speaker. So even when somebody Googles Phil Jones speaker, we find a 30-year established bass amplifier company that have um, called Phil Jones speaker. Um, so um, yeah, I'm up against it on Google rankings. Use the M. Find me online on all the social channels. If it's just at Phil M. Jones UK, you'll find me pretty much everywhere that way around. And um, what do I want to tell people about? The book is huge. Amazon's my favorite place for you to run to go get it. If you like it and love it, leave a review. Those things are the best way you can say thank you to an author. And I want everybody to be aware of my brand new book that comes out early part of next year, which is called Exactly How to Sell. It's the same level of distillation attached to the whole of the sales process to help people understand that they, uh, they too can be sales professionals. And it's particularly written for everybody who needs to sell something that wouldn't see themselves as a salesperson. That's the angle that that comes at it from. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to hear what people have to say. There's one thing I ask of everybody though, is um, if you do choose to connect up, come and reach out for me. Tell me what you've used. Tell me what you've done. Tell me where you've applied stuff. Tell me where you've taken action. Don't just stop and say hi and tell me you like the podcast or you like the book. Tell me what you've done. It's actions that lead to power, not knowledge. And if you're not convinced, uh, listeners, on the book, uh, if you go to Amazon, you will see my written review and my video review of the book. And I'm going to leave the listeners with one final question. If I can use my incredible network to get guests like Phil M. Jones and others, will you do the work of taking their advice, going and getting their book and applying it, and improving yourself as a business person and as a human being? And I hope the answer is yes. And with that, I'll say that this episode was shareable. There are a couple thank yous and shout outs in order. First, thank you to Ray Bueno for all of that sexy production value and a quick thank you to me for producing the show. I'd like to send a shout out to DJ Quads for the use of our theme song, Always, and A. Humitsu for the use of our outro song, Adventures. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jay Gibbard, and you can follow me at Caroline Stone. You can follow the show at shareable underscore pod and just shareable podcast on everything else. That's Facebook, the gram, everything. You can email us at sharablepodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to our email list at sharablepodcast.com slash subscribe. Do all the things. Subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating. Review us on iTunes. Tell a friend. Tell your mom. I don't know. She might like it. My mom does. Hey, mom. <laughs>